I am Dr. Robin Roth. And I'm Dr. Adrian Rosenthal. Together, we are the Booby Docs, our Instagram account where we talk about breast health in an approachable and educational way. We are both fellowship-trained breast radiologists who have been best friends since day one of med school. We work together, we mom together, and now we podcast together. This is The Booby Docs, the girlfriend's guide to breast cancer, breast health, and beyond. In this podcast, we attempt to bridge the gap between doctor and patient while having some fun along the way, all in around 30 minutes or less. So without further ado, let's be breasties. This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please contact your doctor with any symptoms or concerns that you may be having. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Hey, Breasties. It's Robin and Adrian. Welcome to the Booby Docs Podcast. All right. Well, we are very excited to have a very special guest tonight. Um, we welcome Dr. Eleonora Toplinski. She is a medical oncologist who specializes in breast and gynecologic cancer, and we are so happy she's here with us. The first half of the episode is really focusing on breast cancer treatment. Dr. Toplinski does a great job of breaking down hormone receptors, who needs chemotherapy, things like that. The second half of the episode really focuses on lifestyle modifications and tangible things that you can do to lower your risk of breast cancer. We hope this episode resonates with you, whether you have breast cancer or not. And as always, enjoy the show. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what the what role the medical oncologist plays in the treatment of breast cancer? Sure. So I am a medical oncologist. I specialize in treating breast and gynecologic cancers. And these days, you know, most medical oncologists are becoming subspecialized because the treatments are so nuanced. There's so many advances. There's so many changing, you know, research and data that it's really hard to treat everything. And I think patients certainly deserve someone who specializes in their disease type. The medical oncologist is really kind of the cornerstone of the majority of cancer treatment. Um, I kind of, you know, tell patients that we're in charge and uh, of everything once they kind of get to us and we will help navigate them through the process. But, But in breast cancer specifically, you know, patients will meet most often initially with the breast surgeon, and then the breast surgeon will refer them out to the medical oncologist, to the radiation oncologist, and so forth. And the medical oncologist is the person that's going to either give chemotherapy, um, if it's necessary, endocrine therapy, so that's your tamoxifen, your aromatase inhibitors, other types of targeted or immunotherapy. So really anything systemic that's going through the whole body is going to be under the purview of the medical oncologist. So who needs chemotherapy? Very challenging question. And I think definitely not one that can be answered because it's so specific uh, to each particular cancer. But I think this is an excellent time to really point out that all breast cancers are different. So even a stage one estrogen receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer is going to be different than another stage one breast cancer of the exact same type. In general, though, when we think about who needs cancer, we're thinking about patients that have a higher risk of recurrence. And that typically will be patients with maybe uh, with a triple negative breast cancer, with a HER2 positive breast cancer, with an estrogen receptor 
positive HER2 negative breast cancer that has either multiple lymph nodes or a high oncotype or is more locally advanced in terms of its presentation. So the way to really think about it, chemotherapy is really used for those kind of more aggressive cancers that have a higher risk of recurrence, and chemotherapy will help lower that risk of recurrence. Excellent. So I wanted to break down a little bit more of what you just said. Tell us a little about about hormone receptors and why they're important in breast cancer treatment. Of course. So when we think about a diagnosis of breast cancer, the one of the kind of first things we're always going to look at. So the pathologist says, yes, this is breast cancer. The next thing we're asking for is what's the receptor status? And there's three receptors that we're looking for, the estrogen receptor, the progesterone receptor, and the HER2 receptor. If you have all, if you don't have any of those three, that's your triple negative cancer. And the way to think about these receptors, and this is a very simple analogy, but I, this is how I explain it to my patients. So I tell them when we're sitting in my office that we are sitting inside the cancer cell and the receptors are kind of doors to the outside. And if the doors are open or positive or expressed, then that's how the cancer cell is going to get its nutrients. And so we're sitting inside and the food is on the outside. And if the door is open, the food is coming in and the cancer cell can grow. In order to kill or get rid of the cancer cell, you have to block or shut the doors. And so then you target your treatment based on whatever receptors or doors, if you will, are expressed in that cancer. So the estrogen and progesterone are your hormone receptors. And one of the things that I think is really important to point out is when they are kind of when the pathologist reports them out, you're going to be on a score of zero to 100%. And a lot of times people will actually think that the lower the number, the better, but we do want to be on that higher range. You want to be as close to 100 as possible. That tells you that the cancer is really more driven by estrogen. Um, and, and that is a better prognostic factor. So zero to hundred for the estrogen and the progesterone receptor, and that will be on the pathology report. And then we can target the expression of those receptors. And again, what's that, what that's telling you is that those cancer cells are driven by estrogen. Now, even if you're postmenopausal, your body still makes estrogen and it's not a lot, but that small amount is enough to drive the growth. So we're going to target it with medications that either block estrogen from getting to the receptor, such as tamoxifen, or block estrogen production in the body, such as an aromatase inhibitor. Those are Arimidex, letrozole, eximestane. The HER2 uh, is a HER2 is a protein that's expressed on the cell, and the way to block that is with certain HER2 uh, antibodies, specifically the one that most people know is Herceptin. But there are many, uh, not many, but there are several others that we use as well: um, Progetta and HER2, Catsilum. There's a couple of others. So already, I can see how it is such a complicated question to answer because there are so many strategies, so many different approaches. Thank you for breaking that down. Can you tell us a little bit about Oncotype now? Yes. Oncotype is only used in estrogen receptor positive or progesterone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancers. It's a molecular test. The sample of your tumor actually goes for testing. And based on whether certain genes are present or not present, you get a score. The higher the score, it tells you two things. It tells you that you have a higher risk of recurrence. And if you think back to what we said, the people who get chemo are the ones that have a higher risk of recurrence. So it follows that a higher score you would be recommended to have chemotherapy. The 
in terms of the breakdown and what are the cutoffs, they differ very much based on menopausal status and lymph node status. So I won't necessarily go into the exact cutoffs, but we use the oncotype in that ER positive HER2 negative breast cancer to help tell us who is going to need chemotherapy or not. I think that your, you know, your conversation brings up the point that, you know, breast cancer is a very individualized approach and all, there's many, many different types of breast cancers and all these factors go into play when deciding the best treatment strategy for each patient. Exactly. And I think, and I always caution people, you know, a lot of times people will come and they'll say, well, you know, I was recommended this and my friend was recommended that. And I think it is so important to share stories and to compare notes. But I always caution people in doing that because there's they are so nuanced and they're so different that, you know, it may be a difference in one lymph node or the size of the cancer by one millimeter that's going to change whether you have an oncotype or whether you're recommended chemo or, you know, any other treatment changes. Right. You know, so you mentioned the role that estrogen plays in breast cancer. So we have a lot of young patients that are diagnosed with breast cancer. What do you do to preserve fertility in those patients? So I think the most important thing is to have the conversation about fertility. A lot of times it's not often brought up or it's kind of glossed over. And that really is unfortunate. I think that every, I ask every single patient of childbearing age, what their family planning goals are. Do you know, if they have children, do they want more children? If they don't have children, do they want children? And it's very challenging because you're essentially being forced to make a decision in a matter of weeks where you should have months or years to make that decision. And that's very, very stressful. But I always, always urge people to, even if you think that one day you may have a, you you may want to have a a child and there is a chance that whatever treatment that is being recommended may affect your fertility, to go see a reproductive endocrinologist and to have the conversation about fertility preservation. There's always been a concern, you know, are those drugs for fertility preservation safe because you're getting hormones, right, to stimulate the ovaries and to freeze the eggs, but they are, they are safe. They have breast cancer kind of, you know, the um, protocols that are really more kind of low dose hormone and things like that. But we never, that's, We never want to take that chance away from someone if we can avoid it. And so I think the first step is really to have an honest conversation with the patient about what their goals are. I have heard too many stories about people being told, you don't have time for fertility, you you won't be able to have a child. And I think that's just really, you know, really sad. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's enough to be going through cancer treatment and then having to decide if you want children. You know, many people that are facing this are not in the mindset or maybe even in the life stage to be choosing whether or not children. So, yeah, I think it's something that you need to have a discussion down the road. Maybe you might want children. Exactly. I mean, I think it's important to not shut the door on something that you may want in the future. You know, it's so hard to ask someone, hey, think about your life in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... But at the same time, if that's something that they will want down the road, you don't want to take the chance away from them right now. So you've touched a little bit on tamoxifen. Can you tell us what that drug is and why it's given to patients with breast cancer or patients that maybe want to lower their risk for breast cancer? Tamoxifen is a a class of medications called selective estrogen receptor modulators. And what it does essentially is it blocks estrogen from binding to the estrogen receptor. 
when you have or been diagnosed with breast cancer and estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, again, we've talked about how that breast cancer likes estrogen, it's going to feed on it, it's going to, estrogen drives cancer growth. So when you give tamoxifen, you block the estrogen from getting to the receptor and the cancer cell dies and can't grow. We also, we use that for treatment of breast cancer. We also discuss it in role of risk reduction. So for example, people may be diagnosed with kind of precursors of breast cancer, atypical hyperplasia, lobular carcinoma in situ. And those are high risk lesions that are not cancer, but increase your risk of getting cancer down the road. And so we can use, let me back up for a second. Most of our breast cancers are going to be estrogen receptor positive. So we take that, we say, look, you're at higher risk. And in certain cases, people would benefit from tamoxifen to lower their risk of being diagnosed with a breast cancer in the future. I think that when you talk about using these medications for risk reduction, you also have to have a conversation about lifestyle factors that contribute to breast cancer risk reduction. In my mind, you can't, you should do both. If you're going to do it, um, you know, the lifestyle factors are just as important as taking the tamoxifen. So what are some of those lifestyle modifications that um, that you're talking about? Because I know you do such a good job of highlighting them on your Instagram platform. Um, and, and you've actually like really opened my eyes as well, um, just as like a woman in her 40s, like what I can do to, to decrease my risk. Um, can you go into that a little more, please? Absolutely. So these are five, there's five lifestyle factors that all I think everyone should be doing, you know, by the virtue of being a woman and aging, we are all at risk of getting breast cancer. And these are things that not only decrease your breast cancer risk, but improve your cardiovascular health, your bone health, and so forth. So the five, the five things, oh yeah, it's so important. So the five things, number one is going to be exercise. And I'm happy to elaborate on any one of these. Number two, so one is exercise. Number two is weight, being at a healthy weight. Number three is minimizing alcohol use. Number four is looking at nutrition and eating more whole whole foods, more plant-based foods, less red meat, less processed meat, less processed food. Uh, And number five is making sure your vitamin D level is at a normal range. So those are the five factors. And these are all things that may sometimes feel daunting, you know, getting into a regular exercise routine, changing the way that you eat, but even small, small changes really add up to incremental, incremental, you know, major advances down the, you know, major impact in the future. Actually, one of my favorite episodes on your podcast is when you interview your husband on his transition to a plant-based diet. I also transitioned a few years ago and it's been such a positive decision for me. Is your husband still plant-based? I have to ask. Yes. I mean, he's been fully vegan now, I want to say for almost a year and a half. And, you know, it's just kind of a way of life now. And it's funny because our kids might, we have a three and a five-year-old and they're, they are not vegan, but they'll be like, oh, this is vegan. Are you going to make a vegan dinner for daddy? So they're very, they're very into it. Um, But it's just, it's kind of a way of life now. And I mean, I'm not fully vegan. I will not give up sushi. I, I just can't. Um, but I'm mostly plant-based. Then that's what works for my body. For him, being fully vegan is what works. I think the key is really finding something that works for you and is sustainable. What about you? How, you went fully plant-based? 
I did about three years ago. And the question I always get asked is, aren't you always hungry? What do you eat for protein nuts? And it's definitely a transition period, but three years in, I, you, you figure out to your point, everyone's body is different. You figure out what seat, you know, what, what satisfies you and what your body needs. And, and it's been a great transition. I'm happy I did it. That's awesome. I am not planned. <laughs> Robin and I are like yin yang. <laughs> okay. I, I applaud people who are. I, I think the key, I, I really like the term plant forward because it says that you're kind of making an effort, you know, you're eating some plant-based meals, but you're not eliminating everything. Uh, and again, it's all about finding what is sustainable because if you can do something for three months, but then three months later, you're like, all right, enough, I'm done. That's not really going to change your body for the rest of your life. Why is plant-based better for you for breast cancer? Like what is the theory behind that? So one of the theories is that you end up eating more fiber, which is really, really important for breast cancer and breast health. The big thing though is by eating more of a plant-based way, you're eliminating the red meats and the processed meats. And again, chicken and fish, we those are those are fine. Um, we just know that when you eat more plant-based protein, again, you're getting more fiber. The big thing really, and, and all the studies point to this, is getting away from red meat. Um, and, and also there have been some studies that trying to limit animal protein. No one exactly knows why, but in terms of all that processed foods, all that ultra-processed stuff, a lot of it you know, has to do with, I mean, there's a ton of sugar and fats and unhealthy fats, but also there have been some studies that look at, you know, with red meat, sometimes estrogen is fed to those animals. So the thought is that maybe that kind of contributes in some way as well. You know, nutrition is so hard to study in, and, and the nutrition studies I, I think are all flawed because you're asking people, Hey, what did you eat last year for a day? You know, it's none of it's ideal, but the more trends that emerge, I think that we can kind of say, look, you want to be somewhere in that plant-based Mediterranean way, right? Lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, whole grains, limiting the, you know, the red meat, the animal protein, all of that, the processed foods. Also, a good opportunity to also debunk the myth that tofu has phytoestrogens that are harmful. And I love your spiel on that. Can you give us the the phytoestrogen tofu And, you know, it's so crazy that this myth just keeps getting propagated. But soy um, and and phytoestrogens, those are plant-based estrogens that are good for you. They have a protective effect against breast cancer. So we're talking about tofu, um, tempeh, miso, edamame. The caveat to this is that not all soy is healthy. So processed soy, like the soy nuggets, that's not stuff you want to be eating. So we're talking about whole foods, you know, the healthy version of soy. And what does the vitamin D level have to do with breast cancer? We've known for a long time that, you know, vitamin D is really important in terms of so many things, bone health, cardiovascular health, your immune system, you name it. But recent studies have shown also that there is a link with vitamin D and breast cancer. There was a recent study that was published in June of this year, or sorry, presented at the ASCO meeting in June, looking at vitamin D levels at breast cancer diagnosis and how they impacted survival. And what they found in this study is that people who were diagnosed with breast cancer and who had vitamin D levels of 30 or greater had a lower chance of death from breast cancer, which is huge. And they didn't look at what happened if you had a low vitamin D and you know, you repleted it and it went to normal later down the road, but we speculate that that is helpful as well. 
it's not totally clear why vitamin D is so important in terms of breast cancer, but we do know it has it, vitamin D is involved in regulating the growth of mammary cells and breast gland production. So there's something to do with that, but we still don't totally know. But it is important for all of us who have not been diagnosed to make sure that our levels are above 30, which is what they used in the study, because again, it's something that we can do. Um, and I, I recommend that everyone you know, should be getting their vitamin D levels checked by their primary care doctors. The thing is that you can't, it's really hard to get vitamin D from foods. And so most people do need to take a supplement, um, which is fine, you know, and it's just hard to absorb it from food. And so the best one to take is D3 over D2. And I always tell people that they make a plant-based or vegan version of D3 for people that are concerned about that. What what uh, dosage do you recommend a day? So that's different, and I don't. You know, everyone is. It depends on what your level is. Um, the guidelines are kind of vary. Some guidelines will say six hundred. Some will say a thousand. So it really depends. It also depends on if you are what your bone health is already. So do you have a normal bone density or osteopenia or osteoporosis? So it's it's not specific to each particular patient. I mean, it's specific to each particular patient. Yes, we're all we're all about re- risk reduction. In case you didn't realize, I I mean everyone should be right. These are little things that we can all do. All these healthy things, like I know that many people do, and they still get breast cancer. So yes. I think that frustrates people, but at the same time, yeah, like it's something that we need to talk about. Absolutely, and the numbers. I mean, the, this is all evidence based medicine, so we're dealing with large population numbers and. We've seen that as a population, these are ways to to decrease our risk, and it's not going to necessarily work for everyone, but it certainly, you know, as a population does make an impact um, in terms of like cancer diagnosis. If the one thing I would say is that this is why we don't use the word prevention when we talk about these risk factors, because nothing is going to completely eliminate your chance of getting breast cancer or recurrence. But you can, and I have people who come and they, I did everything right and this still happened. And again, because we're just lowering your risk, we're not eliminating it. However, there are a lot of studies that show that if you're exercising and at a healthy weight and taking care of yourself in those ways before you get diagnosed, you still have better outcomes from that breast cancer down the road. And it not, not only that, but it helps you get through breast cancer treatment in, in just a much healthier and better way. So I, I hear that. I think it can be really challenging when you did everything right to still get diagnosed, but it has still has a lot of benefits. I think that's a great point. Um, so after a patient is successfully treated, what is for, for breast cancer, what's a follow-up look with, with you like? How do you monitor their, them for recurrence? So a lot of that, again, is going to depend on the treatment that they received in their cancer and their individual risk for recurrence. In general, we start you know, kind of easing up their appointments. So instead of them coming every few weeks, they're usually coming every three months and then every six months and so forth. We're really looking for symptoms. We don't do routine scans for breast cancer. We don't check tumor markers routinely. And we're because we know that in breast cancer recurrence in general, and again, this is in general, it's not applying to individual cases, is going to show up as symptoms. People may come, you know, develop trouble breathing. They may develop a cough, um, you know, any sort of pain, bone pain, hip pain, you name it. But I tell people that it is not, you know, I, people say, well, what should I look for? And I say, look, I can give you 
five, six symptoms, but what if it's symptom number seven and I didn't tell you that? So I think the key is, and what I share with all my patients is if something is new in your body and it doesn't feel right, call me. It is not your job to figure out whether it's a recurrence or not. That's what I am here for. Your job is to know what's normal for your body. And the challenge with that is that after cancer treatment, you don't know what's normal. And so a lot of times you, you're not sure if this pain is you know, discomfort from your mastectomy or if it's something to be concerned about. And that's okay. That's that's my job to help you figure that out. But in general, we're, you know, at those appointments, we're reviewing residual side effects from treatment, current side effects from whatever treatment they're on now and making sure they're caught up with their mammograms and with their other healthcare maintenance. I can't tell you, you know, how much time we spend talking about getting your colonoscopy and your routine pap smear and your skin cancer screening, all of that. The key to all of this is when you get diagnosed is really to make sure that you're being seen in a breast center that's got a multidisciplinary team where the surgeon can talk to the medical oncologist. Everyone can figure out what is the best course of treatment. You don't want people practicing in, you know, the breast surgeons here, the medical oncologist, you know, they don't communicate, they don't talk because that doesn't, that doesn't set you up for the best care. What other advice can you give to someone who is newly diagnosed with breast cancer? I love that tip that you need to just find a an institution that can kind of gather the team together, the oncologist, the surgeon, the radiation oncologist, the radiologist. It's so crucial to have everyone in one place. What other tips do you have up your sleeve for the new newly diagnosed breast cancer? Patient? It's overwhelming. It's scary. And you don't know where to start. And that is normal because you've never done this before. And so just take a moment, breathe, and gather your support team, right? That's not, we're not talking about your Facebook support team or your Instagram support team. We're talking about, you know, the two to three, four people in your life that are the closest to you and that are going to help you through this. And then you sit down and you make a plan. And the first step is, okay, I've been diagnosed. I've been told I have the diagnosis. I have to see a breast surgeon. That should be your first step. And then, and then you take it step by step. I think it's so daunting when you try to kind of figure out, okay, I'm going to need a plastic surgeon and a medical oncologist and a radiation oncologist. And I'm, you know, you're, it's just too much. So I think the thing is really to take it one day at a time and really focus on the task at hand. So you may know, okay, I'm going to need to do chemo, then I'm going to have to have surgery and I'm going to then need radiation and then I'm going to need tamoxifen or whatever. And when you start thinking months and months, it, it's too much. So you say, okay, for right now, I know what lies ahead, but I'm focusing right now on you know chemotherapy and getting through chemotherapy. And so just really taking it one day at a time and finding people in your life that are going to help you through this, because so many people are going to give you unsolicited advice and that's a lot. And so it's really it's hard, you know, and there's no one, one way to handle it. Some people cry, some people are more stoic, deal and cope with it the way that you need to, not the way that someone else wants you to. It totally, it reminds me, actually, I'm giving a shout out to Christine Gentile because one of the things she said was, you're going to get advice from a lot of different people and you know, one person is going to say, go back to work, keep yourself busy. The other person is going to say, you know, stay at home, like enjoy yourself. And it's so true, like developing that core network, that small group of people that is going to just help you navigate, be a patient advocate. It's, it, it ends up really, 
in the long run paying off. So that's, that's excellent advice. Um, is there anything we're missing? Is there anything you would like to tell us? No, I think we covered, I mean, there's, there's so much I can talk about, but I think we covered the most important thing. Ultimately, the last thing I'll say is that you have to advocate for yourself. And so if you don't like the team, you don't maybe click with the doctor or something doesn't feel right. It is okay to go somewhere else or go for a second opinion or to voice your concerns. Or if something in your body doesn't feel right, you have a new pain, you know, whatever it is, you know yourself the best, you know your body the best. So it's just so important to be your to be your own advocate. And there are going to be times during treatment where you cannot advocate for yourself. And that's why you really need that one or two people in your life that are going to be your advocate when you can't. The last thing I'll say is that your advocate doesn't have to be your significant other. We so often want that you know, our husband or our partner or boyfriend, whatever, to be our, our advocate, that person may not be the right person to do that. It, it's okay to find a friend, a family member who is going to be that person for you. 100%. And we have learned so much from you. I know that when we first, we spoke a few months back and we, and you kind of encourage us to make the podcast. And so we really thank you for your your guidance and your expertise. And you are always such a pleasure to speak with. We remain fangirls. Oh, well, same here. I love seeing all the stuff that you're doing. Um, and your TikToks and Reels are amazing. <laughs> no one puts a TikTok together like Robin. It's, <laughs> okay, I, ha- I have to ask, like, are you guys dancers? Or like, how did, the- I don't know, I, I would get to, like, you're so good at it. I mean, in my past, I've taken tap jazz and ballet. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) It's a creative way to get the word out. And it's a good word to get out. That is true. Exactly. And and you have fun doing it. And that's the most important thing. Everything is better when we do it together. It's true. Butterbeans Cafe. (laughs) It's what my five-year-old is listening to right now. (laughs) We've said it all. I've always wanted to say that. Well, this has been such great advice and we have learned so much from you. If our listeners want to hear more from you, how can they find you in the internet world? Find me at Dr. Toplinski on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. I also host the Interlude podcast, which is on Apple or Spotify. And I talk, I really share the stories of women who have been affected by cancer in any way. And, And that's been a, such a, such a humbling and growing experience for me. And I love it. A huge thank you to Dr. Eleanor Toplinski for providing some insight on the role an oncologist plays in the treatment of breast cancer. And thank you for listening. Until next time, let's be breasties. If you like what you heard or learned something new, please make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. I've literally always wanted to say that and share with your friends. Make sure you check back every two weeks for more great content. We've got some incredible guests coming up and you won't want to miss them. And follow the Booby Docs across all social media platforms for more of the breast information.